welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years War. Thanks for joining me this week as we get into the first of the conflicts that's going to take place in our pre-reading section. Not quite at the war itself just yet, but we are going to learn about the Scottish influence and how the Scots and the English were pretty much at wit's end with each other at this point. Last week I did mention that the Scots had declared war on England, and while it was, you know, rude to do that in the middle of a peace treaty, it's not terribly unpopular with the Scottish population who pretty much hate the English. As a quick reminder, it's worth mentioning that Edward I had done pretty much everything he could to annex Scotland into England, and that included killing civilians, you know, women and children, and just wholesale butchering his way through Scotland in the hopes that he could build enough castles and kill enough people to make them concede that he was king after his attempts at putting basically a puppet king on the throne ended up not working out in his favour. The Scots obviously, as we remember, consolidated their strength under Edward II, raided and then extracted peace from Isabella. This point now, there's a young Prince Edward III, and once again, the Scots are smelling blood in the water, so they're here for more, let's how we say, forced reparations. And so to learn about how the Scots make war, we're here at chapter 17. Here the history speaketh of the manner of the Scots and how they can war. And when they had sojourned three weeks after this said fray, then they had knowledge from the king by the marshals of the host that the next week every man should provide for carts, charrettes, tents, and pavilions to lie in the field and for all other necessities thereto belonging to the intent to draw towards Scotland. And when every man was ready apparelled, the king and his barons went out of the city, and the first night they lodged six mile forward, and Sir John of Hainault and his company were lodged always near the king as he might be, to do him the more honour, and also to the intent that the archers should have no advantage of him nor his company. And there the king abode two days and two nights tarrying for all them that were behind, and to be well advised that they lacked nothing. On the third day they dislodged and went forward till they came to the city of Durnham, a day's journey within the country called Northumberland, the which at that time was a savage and wild country, full of deserts and mountains, and a right poor country of everything, saving beasts, through the which there were runneth a full river of flint and great stones called the Water of Tyne. And on this river standeth the town and castle Carlisle the which sometime was King Arthur's, and held his court there oftentimes. Also on that river is assayed the town of Newcastle upon Tyne, in the which town was ready the Marshal of England with a great company of men-at-arms to keep the company against the Scots. And at Carlisle was the Lord Hereford and the Lord Mowbray, who were governors there to defend the Scots the passage, for the Scots could not enter England, but they must pass this said river in one place or other. The Englishmen could hear no tidings of the Scots till they were come to the entry of the said country. The Scots were past this river so privily that they of Carlisle, nor yet of Newcastle, knew nothing thereof, for between the said towns it was twenty-four English mile. 
Just a quick aside here, there is a translator's note in the original 24 English leagues. It is mentioned that the actual distance in a straight line is over 50 miles. The translator, who we heard of a little bit earlier at the very start of the book, in spite of what he says in his preface on the subject, has not taken any pains to distinguish the leagues or miles of different countries and translates the word liu by mile or league indifferently. Not only in England, where he seems to think that miles and leagues are the same, but also in France, where he admits they are different. Remember, standardization is a relatively modern part of life, did not exist in the late Middle Ages, and these kind of things were all over the place. The Scottish men are right hardy and sore travailing in harness and in wars, but when they enter into England, within a day and a night, they will drive their whole host 24 mile, for they are all a horseback, without it be the trandles and the laggards of the host, who follow after afoot. The king and squires are well horsed, and the common people and other on little hackneys and gledlings, and they carry with them no carts or chariots. For the diversities of the mountains that they must pass through the country of Northumberland, they take with them no purveyance of bread nor wine, for their usage and soberness is such in time of war, that they will pass in the journey a great long time with flesh half sodden, without bread and drink, of the river water without wine, and they never care for pots nor pans, for they seethe beasts in their own skins. They are ever sure to find plenty of beasts in the country that they will pass through. Therefore they carry with them none other purveyance, but on their horse between the saddle and the panel they truss a broad plate of metal, and behind the saddle they will have a little sack full of oatmeal, to the intent that when they have eaten of the sodden flesh, then they lay this plate on the fire and temper a little of the oatmeal. And when the plate is hot, they cast of the thin paste thereon, and so make a little cake in the manner of a cracknel or biscuit, and that they eat to comfort with all their stomachs. Wherefore, it is no great marvel, though they make the journeys than other people do. And in this manner, where the Scots entered into the said country, and wasted and brent all about they went, they took a great number of beasts. They were to the number of four thousand men of arms, knights and squires, mounted on good horses, and other 10,000 men of war were armed after their guise, right hardy and fierce, mounted on little hackneys, the which were never tied nor kept at hard meat, but let go to pasture in the fields and bushes. They had two good captains, for the King Robert of Scotland, who in his days had been hardy and prudent, was then of great age, and sore grieved with the great sickness. But he had made one of his captains a gentle prince, and valiant in arms called the Earl of Moray, bearing in his arms three silver oliers gulls, and the other was Lord William Douglas, who was reputed for the most hardy knight and greatest adventurer in all the realm of Scotland, and he bare Orger a sheaf silver. These two lords were renowned as chief in all deeds of arms and great prowess in all Scotland. Quick little translator's note again there. For whatever reason, it seems that Frasar refers to William Douglas as being called William the whole time. His name was in fact James. If you would like to go further into delving on that one, I would recommend searching James to find the best results. All right, so let's pause here and talk a little bit about this section because... Initially, it doesn't seem to suggest too much. The first half of this is talking about the fact that the English amass on the Scottish border and there's lots of them. The second half is a little bit more useful. It talks about the fact that the Scottish are hardy. They're tough. They can handle being in the saddle for a really long time. They have a very large amount of horses, even though not all of them are chargers. And I think that's sort of what the book is trying to get at 
in the fact that it keeps mentioning Gledlings is that the typical noble knight at this time typically is a cavalryman. He has a horse, but a good charger, like a kind of horse that can actually charge into battle costs enough to buy like a plot of land that can support a family for their entire lives. Like it's an unbelievably, it's like buying a house or a luxury car. Like if you want to invest money in this, you are spending more than most people have access to. And like something like say a luxury car, you then need to also be able to afford to maintain it, have it trained and looked after, fed and cared for, and kept at like a very high level. And so having one isn't a one-time payment, it's also an ongoing series of payments that you need to be able to maintain. And so it's a little bit of a surprise to the English that the Scottish just have a bunch of extra horses and that they're largely on horseback and they're traveling way faster than typical troops are expected to move. The other thing that's mentioned is sort of a bit of a sociological thing where we can see that it's worth distinguishing that the Scottish aren't bringing bread and wine with them. They don't have carts to bring all of this stuff along. They're managing, they don't care if they get rained on or wet as they're traveling. They're just hunting for whatever food they need. They seem very sure that they can scavenge for 4,000 men-at-arms, knight squires, and the other the 10,000 men of war that are going along with them. So there's a pretty considerable amount of confidence that they're going to be able to make it through with plants, animals, supposedly there are beasts everywhere. So I would interpret that as being things like boars, which are obviously aggressive, but edible. And then just a sack of oats that they can turn into some kind of porridge and cook into a biscuit. Certainly, while the text is making some effort to describe Northumbria as being a barren and barbaric place, it's also making efforts to say that the people who live here are doing pretty well at managing themselves. They just don't live as extravagantly as the English seem to do. There's also a fun little section down here with the Earl of Moray and William Douglas, and I am going to keep referring to him as William Douglas just so that it makes sense as we read through the story and we have some consistency. It mentions their arms. So in this case, it is talking about the coats of arms is probably the most common way you've heard it. English English rather than something like American English. Armory where you'd store weapons is spelled with a U. Armory without a U refers to the thing that you have that represents your house, which you can depict on a coat, but you can also have on a surcoat or a shield and you can display in multiple ways and heralds would wear it and stuff like that to show that they were part of your house. So bear with me and I will take my first step into my library and grab a reference book for Armory. All right, I'm back with my copy of the Observer's Book of Heraldry, which fun fact is not the most correct term. Heraldry refers to all aspects of being a herald, which is considerably more than just recognizing and announcing Armory. But nonetheless, let's move on from that particular pedantic notion. Let's have a look. Colors and divisions of shield is probably a good start. So the Earl of Moray bearing in his arms, they are silver, three oliers, golds. And so with a little bit of digging, we can quickly find out that that means we have his arms silver, three pillows red. And for William Douglas, azure, a chief silver. So azure, it's pretty easy. That one is blue. Let's have a look for a chief silver. Another bit of investigation. Looks like 
chief is a horizontal band that runs across the top of the armory. So it would be a blue field, so like a blue background with a silver band running across the top of it. So if you ever see them out in the wild, that's what you're seeing. Not a terrible amount more for me to discuss there. So we're going to head straight in to chapter 18, how the King of England made his first journey against the Scots. When the King of England and his host had seen and heard of the fires that the Scots had made in England, incontinent was cried alarm and every man commanded to dislodge his fellow after the marshal's banners. Then every man drew to the field ready apparelled to fight. There was ordained three great battles afoot, and to every battle two wings of five hundred men-at-arms, knights and squires, and thirty thousand other armed and well-apparelled, one half on little hackneys, and the other were men of the country afoot, sent out of good towns at their wages, and twenty-four thousand archers afoot. So it's worth pausing quickly here and noting that that basically means there's three divisions. In this case, the term battle is referring to a division division of troops. Each one of those divisions had two wings of 500 men-at-arms on horseback, and altogether there were 8,000 fully armed men, knights and squires, 30,000 other armed men, some mounted and some on foot, sent by the good towns, and 24,000 archers, beside all the other rascal and followers of the host. And as these battles were thus ordered, so they advanced forward, well-ranged and in good order, and followed the Scots by the seeth of the smoke that made with burning. And thus they followed all day till it was near night. Then the host lodged in a wood by a little riverside, there to rest and to abide for their carriage and purveyances. And at that day the Scots had brent and wasted and pilled the country within five mile of the English host. But the Englishmen could not overtake them, and the next day in the morning all the host armed them and displayed their banners on the field, every man ready apparelled in his own battle, and so advanced without disordering all the day through mountains and valleys. But for all that they could never approach near the Scots, who went wasting the country before them. There were such marishes and savage deserts, mountains and dales, that it was commanded on pain of death that none of the host should pass before the banners of the marshals. And when it drew towards the night, people, horse, and carriage, and namely the men afoot, were so travailed that they could not endure to labour any further that day. And when the lords saw that their labour in following the Scots was in vain, and also they perceived well, though the Scots would abide them, yet they might take their field in such a place or on such a hill that they could not fight with them, without it were to great damage and jeopardy, then it was commanded in the king's name by the marshals that the host should take their lodgings for that night. And so to take counsel and advice what should be best to do the next day. So the host was lodged in a wood by a riverside, and the king was lodged in a little poor abbey. His men of war, horse, and carriage were marvellously fortrevailed. And when every man had taken his place to lodge there all night, then the lords drew them apart to take counsel how they might fight with the Scots, considering the country they were in. For as far as they could understand, the Scots went ever forwards, all about burning and wasting the country, and perceived well how they could not in any wise fight with them amongst these mountains without great peril or danger. And they saw well also they could not overtake them, but it was thought that the Scots must need pass again the river Tyne homeward. Therefore it was determined by great advice and the council that all the host should remove at midnight and to make haste in the morning to the intent to stop the passage of the river from the Scots 
Scots, whereby they should be advised by force either to fight with them or else abide still in England to great danger and loss. And to this conclusion, all the host was accorded and so supped and lodged as well as they might that night. And every man was warned to be ready at the first sounding of the trumpet and at the second blast, every man to arm him without delay. And at the third, every man quickly to mount on their horses and to draw under their own standard and banner and every man to take with him but one loaf of bread and to truss it behind him on his horse. It was also determined that they should leave behind all their loose harness and all manner of carriages and purveyances, for they thought surely to fight with the Scots the next day. Whatsoever danger they were in, thinking to jeopard either to win or to lose all. And thus it was ordained, and so it was accomplished. For about midnight every man was ready apparelled, few had slept but little, and yet they were sore travailed the day before, as great haste as they made. Or they were well ranged in battle the day began to appear. Then they advanced forward in all haste through the mountains, valleys, and rocks, and through many evil passes without any plain country. And on the highest of these hills, and on the plain of these valleys, there were marvellous great marshes and dangerous passages, that it was great marvel that much people had not been lost, for they rode ever still forward and never tarried for one another. For whosoever fell in any of these marshes with much pain could get any aid to help them out again, so that in diverse places there were many lost and specially horse and carriages, and oftentimes in the day there was cried alarm, or it was said ever that the foremost company of their host were fighting with their enemies, so that the hindermost weaned it had been true. Wherefore they hasted them over the rocks and stones and mountains with helm and shield ready apparelled to fight, with spear and sword ready in hand, without tarrying for father, brother, or companion. And when they had thus run forth, oftentimes in the space of half a mile together toward the cry, weaning it had been their enemies, they were deceived. For the cry ever arose by the raising of harts, hinds, and other savage beasts that were seen by them in the forward. After the witch beasts they made such shouting and crying, that they that came after weaned they had been a-fighting with their enemies. Thus rode forth all that day the young King Edward by mountains and desert without finding any highway, town, or village. And when it was against night, they came to the river of time, to the same place whereas the Scots had passed over into England, weaning to them that they must needs repass again the same way. Then the king of England and his host passed over the same river with such guides as he had, with much pain and travail, for the passage was full of great stones. And when they were over, they lodged them that night by the riverside, and by that time the sun was gone to rest. And there was but few among them that had either axe or hook or any instrument to cut down any wood to make their lodgings withal, and there were many that had lost their own company and wist not know where they were. So a couple of things to break down here. First of all, there's the mention that there was kind of a disparity of logistics. The English were taking in a lot of equipment. They had carts and horses and lots of supplies and extra tools, which theoretically is a good idea compared to the Scots who had basically a small amount on their horses with them. But you can quickly see the difference in how the, those two approaches affect people. The Scots are A, moving very quickly and easily outpacing the English and freely finding time to pillage and move on before the English arrive. And B, the Scots are moving much more freely through this country that is rocky, mountainous, marshy, valleys, 
hills, all that kind of stuff, while the English are struggling. They're struggling to find places to stay. They are not comfortable with the fact that there are no clear roads through these areas. They have abandoned a large amount of equipment in order to gain speed and still not manage to catch up with the Scots. So the two different approaches are very clearly showing two different lifestyles, two different sets of challenges, two different mindsets when it comes to thinking about how do we fight our particular enemy, regardless of whose side you are on in this particular confrontation. Let's keep going and try and get through the rest of this page. Some of the footmen were far behind and wist not well what way to take. But such as they knew best, the country said plainly they had ridden the same day 24 English miles, but they rode as fast as they might without any rest, but at such passages as they could not choose. All this night they lay by this riverside, still in their harness, holding their horses by the reins in their hands, but they wist not whereunto to tie them. Thus their horses did not eat no meat of all that night nor the day before. They had neither oats for forage for them, nor the people of the host had no sustenance of all that day nor night, but every man his loaf that he had carried behind him, the which was sore wet with the sweat of horses. Personal note, that's disgusting. Nor they had drank none other but the water of the river. Without it were some of the lords that had carried bottles with them. Nor they had no fire nor light, for they had nothing to make light withal. Without it were some of the lords that had torches with them. In this great trouble and danger they passed all that night, their armor still on their backs, and their horses ready saddled. And when the day began to appear, the which was greatly desired by all of the host, they that trusted them to find some torches for themselves and for their horses, or else fight with their enemies, the which they had greatly desired to the intent to be delivered out of this great travail and pain that they had endured. All that day it rained so fast that the river and passage was waxen great and risen so high that it were noon there might none pass the passes again. Wherefore they could not send to know whereas they were, nor where to have any forage or litter for their horses, nor bread nor drink for their own sustenances. But so all that night they were fain to fast, nor their horses had nothing but leaves of trees and herbs. They cut down bows of trees with their swords to tie with all to their horses and to make themselves lodges. And about noon some poor folks of the country were found, and they said they were as fourteen mile from Newcastle upon Tyne, and eleven mile from Carleasel, and that there were no town nearer to them wherein they might find anything to do them ease withal. And when this was showed to the king and to the lords of his council, incontinent were sent thither horses and sumpters to fetch them some purveyance. And there was a cry in the king's name made in the town of Newcastle, that whosoever would bring bread or wine or any other victual should be paid therefore incontinent at a good price, and that they should be conducted to host in safeguard. For it was published openly that the king nor his host would not depart from the place that they were in till they had some tidings where their enemies were become. And the next day by noon, such as had been sent for victual returned again with the host with such purveyance as they could get, and that was not over much. And with them came other folks of the country with little nags charged with bread, evil bacon into panniers, and small poor wine in barrels, and other victual to sell in the host, whereby great part of the host were refreshed and eased. 
So that's another little point of comparison there that the Scots are hardy folks running around eating oats and the English in their attempt to copy them and catch up have abandoned all of their supplies and found themselves greatly distressed for a couple of reasons. One, they're basically staying up all night, armored, ready to go, fearing that something might happen. They're so concerned and having so much trouble traversing the train. They're leaving people behind, sometimes in swamps and in personal danger. They're just moving past them. They are running out of food and water, and they're distressed because they don't have the kind of things they're accustomed to. They send out specifically and they say, you know, river water, not good enough find us wine. And part of that is likely because things like river water, running water, especially from rainfall, probably okay even at this point, but water and rivers can be pretty bad drinking water, especially if there is a town upstream that would be doing things like dumping sewage or any other kind of waste into the river. And so having alcohol helps kill those germs and is actually probably a safer way to drink at this point in time. Other than that, the English have mostly just had a prolonged stay of getting lost in the countryside. They've gone hither and thither trying to find their way through the north of, well, they would claim England and Scotland would claim Scotland, but they've basically got themselves lost, freaked out at noises in the forest and largely done nothing at this point. I'm going to stop there for this week as we've gotten through a fair amount of this area, but chapter 18 is long enough that it's going to need to be at least a two-parter. And I think this is a natural break in the chapter so that we can pause here and then come back next week to continue the pursuit of the Scottish and discover the resolution of whether or not they ever actually managed to catch up with the Scottish army and force a battle. Hopefully we'll find out next week and I hope to see you there to learn more about chapter 18 and enjoy more of Chronicles The Hundred Years War.